0: Good morning. The scripture reading today is from Luke 1, 46 to 55. And Mary said, my soul glorifies the Lord, and my spirit rejoices in God my Savior. For he has been mindful of the humble state of his servant. From now on, all generations will call me blessed. For the mighty one has done great things for me, He has helped his servant Israel, remembering to be merciful. To Abraham and his descendants forever, just as he promised our ancestors. This is the word of the Lord.
1: Church, let's pray. Father God, we thank you and praise you for your truth. I thank you for this song of Mary that Cheryl just read for us that reminds us just of the joy of Christmas, the reality of your love coming to us in Christ. I pray as we reflect on your word that your gospel would be clear to your people, that we might be built up in every way to wait in your love for the day when we see you face to face. We love you and praise you in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, what's your favorite Christmas carol? You don't have to answer, but think about it a little bit, and also think about why do you love it so much? You know, people have really strong opinions about this. At times, I have. Um, we have very strong opinions about carols that we love, and very strong opinions about carols that we don't love. Um, for me, Away in the Manger just doesn't do it for me. Jesus cried. He made noises. He was a baby. No crying he makes. Please. I am sure his healthy lungs wailed nice and loud. It's a beautiful song. But perhaps your favorite is Hark the Herald Angels Sing, which we'll be singing later. And it's profound theological message. It brings, um, it brings in a reflection on how Jesus overcomes the curse of sin and renews God's image in us. It tells the gospel from Genesis all the way to the end. It's by far the deepest Christmas carol. Um, or perhaps your, your preferences for uh, carols that tell the story of Christmas. Like What Child Is This that we sang, or Once in Royal David City, which we'll sing tonight. Or your favorite carol might be about a song about the hope that Christmas brings into our situation, into our world. You know, the hope of Christmas applied. A song like I heard the bells on Christmas Day, or O oh Holy Night you know i love those songs so much or maybe it's jingle bells well, i don't know a song composed entirely of sentiment on, and nostalgia <laughs> you know my favorite changes from year to year depending on what i need and where my heart is and that's okay i'm not sure i can pick just one carol this year except to say that i love the advent carols even more like o come o come emmanuel But today we're looking at what is appropriately called the first Christmas carol. Mary's song, also called the Magnificat. It's been turned into music throughout the years, um, and there are beautiful tunes that you might have in your mind. She sings it, though, in praise to the Lord, after she has been told she would conceive a son by God's Spirit who would bring salvation to all God's people. You know, it's a wonderful song she sings, and we can see it as a song reflecting on God's love, even though the word love is not even mentioned. It's God's love displayed in his character, his actions, and his personal care. As we reflect on Mary's song, my goal for you is to see how the steadfast love of God enables us to embrace our season of Advent waiting with confidence. We'll look at the source of God's love, the display of God's love, and how we experience God's love. You know, Mary's song opens with a beautiful expression of praise. The angel has announced in in the prior passage that that she's going to be pregnant before she's married, while still a virgin. And this has caused her a lot of confusion. She's uh, left her home to go visit her cousin, Elizabeth. Elizabeth. And her cousin has wonderfully encouraged her, greeted her with joy. Said, how how could I possibly be so blessed that the mother of my Lord would come to me? God had revealed to Elizabeth the truth of Mary's baby. But you know, it's still going to be a major inconvenience for Mary. But she nonetheless has moved from her place of uncertainty to praise. From uncertainty to praise. That's one reason it's so powerful to hear her words. She says, My soul glorifies God. My spirit rejoices in God my Savior. And then throughout this song, she quotes from no fewer than six Old Testament books. Man, Mary is profoundly wise. It's like she's been saturated in the good news of hope in the Old Testament for her entire life. Remember, she's... Young, 12, or maybe a teenager. And she gives this beautiful song of immense theological depth. It's a heartfelt expression, though, in these first words, of gratitude to God for his steadfast love. But I first want to look um, in, in this song on how she reflects on the source of God's love. You know, in the bulk of Mary's song, she doesn't dwell on Praising God, in, in the, uh, she doesn't dwell on her own circumstances for he, her emotional state, but she rejoices in God's character and what he has done. Mary in this song brings out three attributes of God, two of which we generally don't think of a lot at Christmas. In verse 49, she calls God the mighty one who has done great things for me. She's reflecting on God's power toward her. Although at Christmas we generally think of God taking on weakness as he inhabits human flesh in Christ, in the Incarnation, it's truly also an expression of his power. And it's one that a lot of people wrestle mightily with. You know, one of the things that people have the hardest time accepting about Christianity and about Christmas is the virgin birth. Historically, it's actually one of the reasons we Are a separate denomination from from other um, Presbyterian denominations that are more common in our our country. Um, It's because in in some of those, and I I don't want to go too deep into that, um, pastors don't actually have to believe in the virgin birth. And that was a reason for separating in order to affirm the truth of God's word when it was being denied. This is significant. And it's really hard, especially when you have churches saying pastors don't even have to believe this because it's too hard to accept. People will ask, How can a virgin become pregnant? That can't happen. Don't you know the birds and the bees? Don't you know science? Would an ultimate God really inhabit the lives of a backwater Middle Eastern tribe 2,000 years ago? It's preposterous. How could something of eternal significance happen that way? The claims are just too much to believe. But you know, these concerns and these doubts, they arise from questioning God's power. Something Mary very clearly affirms. She affirms his might. But the objections themselves display an inconsistency of reasoning for the claims of Christmas are rooted in an ultimate God who rules over all things, who created all things, and in whom everything lives and moves and has its being. And if you believe that, believing in the virgin birth isn't really that hard. We need to recognize what Mary recognizes, that God coming to us at Christmas in this time and at that, in that way was an expression of his divine power breaking into our world in love. The second attribute Mary recognizes is God's holiness. She says, holy is his name. This word holy, it emphasizes God's moral perfection. Again, an attribute we are not generally focused on at Christmas uh, because holy literally means to be set apart, to be preserved from common use. Separated from what's unclean or common. Yet what's Christmas all about? Jesus coming to us. Not being separate from us. He came into this world through a common woman married to a common man. God came into a sinful world. Holiness is a radical separation from sin, but Jesus chose radical nearness to sinners. And later in his ministry, he was known for sharing meals with the worst of the worst who came to him. But for Mary, in her reflection of, on God's grace coming through her body, the incarnation is a demonstration of his holiness. How can this be? Well, it's because God's holiness confers and produces holiness in his people. God's holiness is contagious. He doesn't get despoiled by humanity. He infects humanity with his holiness. Jesus ultimately suffered for our unholiness to make us holy. Jesus' birth is an expression of God's loving holiness, for in coming to us, he doesn't destroy us, but instead gives us his holiness in love, those of us who trust in him. And that's actually where we move quickly to this third attribute his mercy. His mercy and his compassion. In verse 50, Mary sings, His mercy extends to those who fear him from generation to generation. She repeats this same idea toward the end of her song in verse 55 when she says that God has remembered to be merciful to Abraham and his descendants forever, just as he promised. By these two statements, Mary is making a reference to the Old Testament, uh, to what's called the Shema in the Old Testament. It's this often repeated statement of the character of God, how he introduces himself to his covenant people. It says, I am the Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. What a beautiful way for God to introduce who he is to his people. Merciful, gracious, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. Mary reflects on this character of God, his mercy in sending Jesus as a Savior to his people. And for Mary, God's mercy is not a one-off. It's not like a judge who just woke up on the right side of the bed and decided to go easy on somebody that day. No, it's part of who he is. It's part of his character, and it's expressed ultimately in him sending a Savior to his people through her. And that's a reason for praise and worship. God's love for us is not made possible by Christmas. We need to get the order of operations right here. God's love for us is not made possible by Christmas. No, God's love produced Christmas. He is merciful, so he sent Jesus to bear the price for our sin. It's not that Jesus bears the price for sin so God could be merciful. They're in this together, God the Son, God the Father. His love and mercy produces his coming to us at Christmas. For Mary, the promise of Christmas displays all of God's character to see. His mighty power which accomplishes the humanly impossible... For his people, his holiness, which doesn't shy away from sinners, but dives into our mess, touches us to make us holy, and his mercy, which reaches out to his needy people in love. God's love for us is rooted in these attributes that Mary reflects on. But you know, his love is also displayed in his redeeming actions. In verse 51, Mary turns from reflecting on God's mercy to proclaiming his saving deeds. She sings, he has performed mighty deeds with his arm. He has scattered those who are proud in their inmost thoughts. You know, for me, this line is so important when we think about Christmas. I I think, in reality, it pushes back against the banal sentimentality of our culture's Christless Christmas celebrations. Now, there are wonderful things about sharing this holiday with a secular world. There is universal value in giving and generosity and families gathering around a meal and taking time from work uh, for relationships, togetherness, love, peace— they're wonderful sentiments, and we can happily share them with a the secular world. But they have no answers for reality. The reality is this year is that there is no celebration of Christmas in Bethlehem. The streets are silent. There's mourning, and there's grief for suffering and war. And while we gather and feast, there are hungry in the world... While we have peace, war is being waged. While many are together, so many experience separation and loss. Sentiment doesn't cut it. It's not enough. It's an alternate reality if it's not backed up by a God who acts, who intervenes. Due to loss, sickness, deployment, divorce good sentiment has nothing to say to a broken world and a broken and sinful people. It's not enough. It doesn't cut it. That's why there's no space in Mary's song for an empty fa-la-la-la-la, whatever, ding-dong, this, that. I, I, I really don't like songs that make me sound like a bell. That's my other gripe about Christmas. Um, those start playing, I, I just politely stop singing. Um, Perhaps you like them, that's okay. But there's no space for that sentimentality in Mary's song. No space for mere good feeling from a distant God. No, from her lowly and uncertain state, she celebrates and praises a God who acts, who dives into human history and brings change and transformation. That's what Christmas is about. He breaks into our world and saves his people by his mighty arm. Friends, that is what gives us hope in the advent of our lives, in the season of waiting and longing and suffering, that we have a God who acted in sending his Son to save and redeem sinners like us, not a God who sends thoughts and prayers from afar. No. When Mary sings this song, she offers no specific examples, but she doesn't really need to. They're etched indelibly into the memories of the Israelites in that day. God acted in love when he brought his people up out of slavery in in Egypt, bringing rulers down from their thrones. God acted in love when he saved his people from the oppression of their enemies, from Sisera, from the Philistines. God acted in love when he rescued his people from the Midianites through Gideon. He has lifted up the humble. God acted in love when he rescued his people from exile in Babylon. He acted, he acted, he acted again. But the grammar of Mary's language indicates she's not only looking backward to what God has done in history, but forward to how he would fulfill his promise to Abraham to be with his people forever and to be a light for the Gentiles and the nations that all might worship him. So now she is celebrating how God has acted in love by sending his own son to take on a human nature, save his people from their sin, and restore their hope and glory in him. Mary sings with the prophet Isaiah in Isaiah 64, 4. For from days of old, no one has heard, no ear has perceived, nor eye has seen a God besides you who acts on behalf of the one who waits for him. The answer to a fractured world is not the good feeling of Christmas, it is the God who acts to save through Christmas that is worthy of songs. Do you believe in a God who acts? In a God who intervenes, who breaks into our mess, who has fulfilled his promise to you to forgive your sin and make you his child in Christ? Do you believe in a God who acts to give you hope now? You know, I confess this to you. This is a struggle when you're suffering, and it has been a struggle for me when I'm suffering. In my own life, there have been times I've struggled to believe the promise of David in Psalm 27 when he says, yet I am sure of this, I will see the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living. There have been times I've doubted that's true. Perhaps you have too. But if our God is one who intervened who truly came in human flesh at Christmas. We can trust him with our present struggles and know that he will keep his promises just as he did to Abraham, just as he did to Mary. That's where we turn to the last thing I want to leave with you. We've moved from God's big saving acts of salvation but now we look at his personal care for Mary. You know, I so love this statement in verse 48 when Mary says she rejoices in God because he has been mindful of the humble state of his servant. Such a beautiful statement coming from one so worldly, weak, and frail and uncertain. To be pregnant before marriage would have been a death sentence for many. She had reason to be afraid, yet she trusts in the Lord and said, He's been humble, or He's been mindful of my humble state. You know, most of Mary's song is about God's love displayed in His character and, and in big picture redemptive work things, His plan of salvation for His people, but with this one statement, she reflects personally. That reveals her wonder at, her, at His personal care. You know, some Christians, and perhaps this is you, find it really easy to believe in a God who is supreme, who is mighty, who is holy, who rules over all things, but struggle to believe that he could actually invade human history and my history to be attentive to us personally in our needs. If that's you, I want you to know that Scripture consistently affirms both things. That he is mighty beyond our comprehension, yet he is nearer than we could ever fathom. Nearer than any human mother or father or brother or sister could ever be. He knows you better than you know yourself. That's what Christmas testifies to. Theologically, this is called um, the dichotomy between his transcendence, his, he's, being, he's bigger than, than we can fathom, and his imminence. He's nearer than we can understand, knowing every hair on our heads. Mary rejoices in both of these things beautifully. So wise, so astute. You know, Tim Keller once made a profound but simple observation on this text. Looking at Mary, he said, She is an excellent example of how a person can know that they're a Christian. He said, You know how to know if you're a Christian? when you encounter God's love in Christ, when you experience God's love in Christ, it changes you. That's such a simple statement, but it's so profoundly true. Mary was transformed by her encounter with God's love. That's how you can see that she's praising despite a difficult circumstance. Knowing God, Christian faith, it's never a mere affirmation of God's love and goodness generally. It is never merely saying, yes, I believe he did that." And he's good and he's holy, and leave it there. That's that's not Christian faith. It's not merely believing um, truths that remain apart from me. No, it is an experiential encounter with his love and goodness toward you, toward you, and toward me. It's an experience of love that says, I have been in need. And Jesus has saved me. He came for me. The cross, the empty tomb, that manger, it intervened in my life. And I am changed because of what he has done in history for all humanity. You know, the only way to experience his tender personal care is to know your need of it. That's what all this stuff later in the song is all about. When he says, he fills the hungry, but sends the rich away empty. He casts down rulers, but lifts up the humble. It is this great reversal where God exalts those who are weak and casts down those who are strong. It's not that he so much has a problem with wealth as he does self-sufficiency, oppression, and selfishness. The self-sufficient person cannot experience the personal love and care of God because he can't see how he needs it. So they go away empty, thinking they have nothing that they need. The personal love and care of God can't be experienced um, uh, by by those who who are self-sufficient. But the person who comes to him with empty hands knowing that what they are and what they have is not enough for God and they cannot meet their own needs ultimately, they are the ones who go away filled because they are ready to receive. To know Jesus, to receive true Christmas hope, you need to know your need. You know, that's the reason I love Advent so much. Because it's all about seeing our needs, seeing our darkness, seeing our inadequacy, our emptiness, our sinfulness. So that when we celebrate Jesus coming to us, we can receive him as coming into reality. Not just a pie-in-the-sky fantasy, but a God who intervenes, who acts, and who brings hope to the reality of our messy situations. So we can see how he came for us. For you and for me. His might, his holiness, his mercy. It is all expressed on your behalf if you trust in him. Brothers and sisters, the time is short. We have but hours left in Advent. (laughs) So use this time to reflect once more on your need. So that you might let his love, joy, peace, and hope you from the outside for this child born to us at Christmas is the Jesus who will go to the cross in our place for our sins that we might be forgiven and then who will rise to glory that we might have eternal life in him come empty and be satisfied by the God who lovingly gives you everything in his son in him is all you'll ever need You know, in a moment, we're going to sing the Christmas carol, Hark the Herald Angels Sing. It is one of my favorites. But one of its verses, its second verse, is so profound. And I think it reflects on how God manifests his love to us at Christmas. Let me read this for you. And then I'll pray and we'll sing together. It says, mild he lays his glory by. Jesus lays his glory by coming to us. He was born that man no more may die. He was born to raise the sons of earth, to give us life, life eternal who trust in him. And that's why the angels sing. That's why they sing glory to the newborn king. This proclaims Jesus' action and that he acted for us at Christmas. Brothers and sisters, embrace His gift of love in Christ. Amen. Let's pray. Our Father God, we thank you and praise you that love came to us at Christmas. Lord, I pray that you would help us not to fear the darkness, but to see your light which shines in its midst. I pray that you would open our eyes to see how you are a mighty God who can do all things, yet you are nearer than we could fathom. Lord, we know both of these things are true, yet it's so hard to believe. Help us. Lord, and as we trust in you, help us to bear your light to a world that is in deep need of it. That we might bring you praise, glory, and honor, even as Mary did. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.